Greetings to all of you listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I am here to speak to you as the oracles of God, the word of God, that he would say to the body of Christ at this particular hour, and to you as an individual who, in the foreknowledge of God, has come across this message. I'm not sure what the Holy Spirit is going to say today. I have had a harder week, and it's late, and I'm a lot more tired than normal when I speak. But I am trusting God to speak through me what he would be saying. Also to me as an individual. The chapter that really stands out that I received from the Lord this week, through the casting of lots, comes from the book of Joel. It was actually chapter 1 and 2, but I decided also to make it the whole book, including chapter 3. What do we see in the world around us at this time? Well, we see many that are so insensitized by their immediate world and all the pleasures of this life that they're not even awake to the reality of the events in the natural that are taking place. In fact, I go to churches where they can talk about things of the Lord and they're not even awake to the reality of the current events around them to drive home the urgency of what is before us as a nation in the United States as a nation in Canada and in whatever nation you happen to be in this particular time. It is a time before great judgment. And the book of Joel talks about God's dealing with the nations, in particular the nation of Israel and how he uses judgment. And it also describes the way things will be at the very end of time, of which we are on the very precipice of. And that's in Joel chapter 3. Now, the two chapters that stand out this week that I received is not only from Joel, which I received on Wednesday, but is also from Deuteronomy chapter 1, which I received on Monday. Now, I suppose I could just briefly point out a few of the verses in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So I will go to Deuteronomy chapter 1 just to point out some of these verses that I received in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, we have Moses giving an account of the various things that transpired as they came up to the place of entering the promised land. And I'm not obviously going to read this whole chapter. I just want to point out a few verses in it. In particular, Moses mentions this, beginning in verse 22. 
And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search out the land and bring us word again by what way we must go up, and to what cities we shall come. And the saying pleased me well, and I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe, and they turned and went into the mountain, and came unto the valley of Ishkel and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down unto us, and brought us word again and said, It is good. It is a good land which the Lord our God doth give us. Notwithstanding, ye would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, your God. And ye murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. And I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you, according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bare thee, as a man doth bear his son in all the way that ye went, until ye came into this place. Yet in this thing ye did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in a fire by night to show you by what way ye should go, and in a cloud by day. And the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was wroth, and sware, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon unto his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, Thou also shalt not go in thither, but Joshua the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And I goes on. And of course they repented, but it was too late. The Lord resolved that they should suffer the consequences of their unbelief. And so they were miserably defeated, and then that generation died off in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They lacked courage. And the reason they lacked courage was because they lacked faith. They had not wholeheartedly followed the Lord. Faith is built up through seeking God, as it says in Jude, building up yourselves, building up yourselves in the most holy faith by praying in the Holy Ghost. Our inner man is important. It is the true essence of who we are, our soul and our spirit. And it is through waiting on God, through seeking him in prayer, that our identity grows in our relationship with God. 
and our inner being becomes strong and bold and fearless because it knows the reality of God within our being and his power and his might that is greater than the greatest circumstances of opposition that are life-threatening. Well, what about those that are being tortured in prison? Even in these things, we are more than conquerors. For as Paul the Apostle said in Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor principalities nor power, nor height nor depth, nor anything else, torture, imprisonment, whatever it is, shall separate us from the love of God. When we have a vital abiding relationship with God, our inner man is built up and there is the power and the authority that can rise up within us to inherit those things that God has called us to enter in our destiny for eternity. Now we go to the book of Job. And we are about again to face some very trying times. Now, I'm not intending to read the three chapters of Joel. I will touch on it. So I'm turning back to Joel chapter 1. And it describes how the land has become barren because of the drunkenness of the people of God. Says in Joel chapter 1. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Verse 8. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest... The Lord's ministers more. There's no longer the blessings of material prosperity of abundance of food. All oh, is becoming desolate. People no longer can enjoy. a life of ease, of material comforts. They're being shaken out of the womb of their own little world and coming forth through this difficult time to a place where they can choose to enter a relationship with God Or be lost forever. And Joel goes on and he describes basically in chapter one God using famine to bring judgment upon the land in order to bring them to the place, as it says in verse 13 gird yourselves. And lament, ye priests, haul ye ministers of the altar, come, 
Lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. That's in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, again, we see a description of God's judgment. But this is more of a description that has a twofold meaning. It has the immediate judgment of a nation coming upon and against the nation of Israel. And it has a future description of judgment in the last days that will come upon the world. And it says in verse 3, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen show shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth a stubble, and as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty man, they shall climb up the wall like men of war, they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one in his path. And when they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. Their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And because this is the case, the Lord says this in verse 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will not, if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a calf, a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. And those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine inherit heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? then the Lord will be jealous for his land and pity his people. And I will not go on to read the rest of chapter 2 here. It's just a little picture of chapter 2. 
And we do know that there is the armies that are described in Revelations chapter 9 that are as the appearance of horses as described here. And if you will, I can go briefly to the book of Revelations chapter 9 and just read a few of those verses. So Revelations chapter 9, we have the description of God's judgment in the last days. We have the description of, of locusts that will look like horses and have tails like scorpions that torture men for five months. Then we have another phenomena that also looks like horses that comes after that. And that is described. Again, it says in verse 17, And thus I saw horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jaconeth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was a third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth, and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the whole intent of God allowing these judgments upon the earth in the last days is that men will be brought to repentance because it says in verse 20, and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murderers nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. Oh, you might say, well, that's talking about some ancient thing. We don't worship devils today. We don't worship idols of gold and silver. Oh, yes, we do. There are many people that are Satanists today, and it's a growing movement. And the statistics are quite alarming on how many witch covens there are in B.C. alone. And yes, we worship the gods of materialism that consist of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood, wood for homes, many other things. And we're involved with all kinds of sorceries. Sorceries is the word for pharmakeia in the Greek. We have all kinds of people taking drugs nowadays that have distorted their judgments through the use of those drugs. And I won't go into all of that. It says that in the last days, all nations will be deceived by the use of drugs, by the fact that people use drugs. I'm not here to get into all of these things. But this is painting a picture, briefly, of the last days. Now I want to go back to our theme chapter, which I'm going to focus in on Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, which describes the hour we're living in even more so. And so... We, right now, are coming to a time when God will shake all those things that people are drunken by. They're drunken and desensitized by. We are at a shocking time where we see more and more a polarization 
between those that have identity and a relationship with God and those that are the very opposite. It is shocking to see some of the events that have taken place in the United States. You only have to go to various news sources. It's even on the major news networks that are really compromised, the big ones like CNN and so on. But there's this gay couple. What do they do? This Mennonite couple that have been using a building to do weddings uh, for years in a Lutheran church building. And that's how they make their living. And this gay couple comes there and says, we want you to do our wedding. And they say, as Christians, we cannot condone these things. That would be a sin against God. In essence, that's what they said. And this gay couple goes ahead and has them charged. And they're taken to court. And this judge requires them to pay a $135,000 fine. And this is something they could have had done very easily at another place just down the road. But no, they had to force their immorality uh, against someone's conscience. There's another lady that decided to quit her job. Well, I forget what the position is where they marry people, I believe. So she decided, she said to these gay people, I can't do this. I, it goes against my conscience. I'm quitting. But that wasn't enough for them that she quit. No, they had to sue her on top of it. This, of course, is very outrageous. And it shows basically the absolute insanity in some people. that have no value. Or conscience. Or respect. For what others believe. And there's many, many more of these cases that are beginning to take place. And the question is, are we as the body of Christ going to wake up? To the impending judgment that is going to come upon the world. If there is not repentance, it will be far more severe. This judgment is described in various places in the scripture, such as Isaiah 24 that describes that seventh seal that will be opened in the last days, which is that vast, enormous earthquake, far greater than any earthquake that has ever been upon the earth, that will cause the cities of the nations to fall and the Antichrist world system that is set up by the Antichrist, which includes the second Babylon set up by the Antichrist, to fall. And the kingdom of God will then be ushered in upon the earth. But before all of those events happen, we have these other judgments that are described to bring people to repentance. And that are also described in Joel chapter 2 and here in Joel chapter 3. I just want to briefly go to Isaiah 24 and highlight a few of the verses there. Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah. Turning to Isaiah 24. And I want to point out 
similar descriptions of God's judgment in the last days in Isaiah 24. And we hear, we see here the following. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it upside down and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury. To him, the land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourneth and fadeth away, the world languisheth and fadeth away, the haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Why? Because they have transgressed the laws and changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. What is the everlasting covenant that they've broken? It is marriage between one man and one woman, which is a picture of God's ultimate purpose for all things, which is his marriage to his corporate bride, from every background and tribe and people and tongue and nation, that he seeks and will be the ultimate consummate purpose of the reason for all things. In fact, it is reflected in the creation of male and female counterparts in all living things. But what do they do in the last days? They change it, as we've seen in the Supreme Court in the United States, in violation of the Constitution of the United States in this example, though I do not live in the United States. And it says here in Isaiah 24 that because they have changed the ordinance and broken the everlasting covenant, and the reason it's everlasting is because God's ultimate covenant is in marriage to his corporate bride, which he will call forth out of every background and every denomination and religious identity that is not in union with him. And therefore, what does it say here? Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Now that hasn't happened yet. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Are you aware of what's happening with Russia and China? Are you aware of their plans to destroy the United States with a nuclear attack that will incinerate the major cities on both coasts? You don't think they'll do it, really? I pray they don't. It is my earnest prayer that none of these things would ever happen. 
But we can tell from the descriptions in the word of God in Revelations chapter 18, which is describing the world system in the last days that has become a whore, which is shaking in the face of God immorality as it is now, that was once pure, that was once a virgin, but has now become a whore, embracing immorality in defiance of God himself, Immorality that destroys the family and destroys a nation has been seen time and time again throughout history to be the case. When the family unit is destroyed, a nation breaks down into apostasy and greater and greater anarchy. And we see it in many cases. In fact, there is a book I've heard of somewhere, and I believe it was a study of, was it 500 civilizations? Or this is the case when there is the embracing of those things that destroy the family unit, which is the embracing of immorality, where one puts their immediate gratifications before the higher good of others. When this spreads in society to positions of leadership, there is the impending judgment of God. You see, love that is pure is who God is. The word of God says God is love. And love is a quality that is totally self-originating and free of, in its choice that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal gratification. Anything less has corruption in it and therefore has a destructive principle in it and will eventually come to destruction. But God's being is the ultimate perfection of love and it's the integrity of his love is innate as a blazing fire of judgment to consume all that is contrary to this ultimate quality of love. And as such, God is able to contain unlimited power in life without corruption, and that is indicative that he is the very source of it. And only when life can be contained without corruption can it be directed in goodness, in love being expressed in creativity that can ever enlarge into realms of greater and greater fulfillment. This is the holiness of God, and it is the foundation from which springs his creativity to be able to assure to creation ultimate everlasting fulfillment because from that foundation there is a purity that is so great that God, without violating the integrity of his love, could absorb judgment upon himself in order to bring forth the creation in union with him, as it were, his bride. His corporate bride being ultimately manifested in man, coming into identity and deep reciprocative union with God. So there's two things in the being of God 
in this ultimate perfection of love, which are represented in the two ultimate symbols, which are in math and in electricity, and that is the negative and the plus symbol. The negative symbol is the integrity of God's love that cuts off all that is contrary to this ultimate perfection of love, and also represents foundation from which can spring forth this creativity of love without corruption. And the plus symbol is the representation of this love and its ultimate purity that is so great that God could humble himself more than you, the mere creature, and suffer more than you, the mere creature, so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to him by repenting of your rebellion against his love, the integrity of his love, which is his holiness, and receiving his outpoured love poured out in his blood on the cross for you so that you could be cleansed and made white as snow and forgiven of all your sins. The plus symbol is the symbol of the cross. It is the symbol of electricity. It is the symbol in math. And it takes an, an, an identity in the negative from which there is an identity in the positive, the plus. In recognizing the greatness of God's mercy on the cross, we recognize the greatness of his love, a love without violating its integrity and judgment. There is nothing more ultimately trustworthy than this. This is the very essence of reality, and God is the ultimate source of reality. Reality is that which is filled with life with no corruption in it, that is indestructible. In fact, if you define the word truth in dictionaries, the various dictionaries basically say that truth is that which is real or reality. And then you look up reality, you discover that reality is that which is indestructible, immovable, and everlasting. And the only quality that is, is God. Because God is love, and this love is ultimately manifested in a God that is so ultimately trustworthy that he can provide an assured destiny to creation. And if he could not, it would imply that he was less than perfect, for he would have created that which had no purpose. I share that with those that are new to give them an understanding. And so in the word of God, it says that God is Yahweh, which means the self-existent one. He is also described as the I am that I am, which in Hebrew is Ahiyah, Jesus Christ said, I am that I am. He is the government of God in the time and space realm communicating to creation, which ultimately revealed that love of God upon the cross and became that perfect atoning sacrifice that allows us to come forth into a relationship with God. And it is the reciprocation of these two aspects of God's being, the negative aspect, which is the integrity of his love, and the positive aspect, which is the mercy that issues out of that integrity in favor towards those that come to him and receive his atoning provision on the cross through Jesus Christ.
And what we have is God's ultimate purpose in a bride being violated when these laws are changed that are described here in Isaiah that bring God's judgment upon the earth. And that, see, the problem that people have is that they get offended at the holiness of God, at the consequences of God's love that requires judgment. That has been the case from the very beginning of time. Cain became offended at the consequences of the fall of man through Adam and Eve that resulted in him having to labor by the sweat of his brow and probably many other things that he observed. But there are consequences to going against the integrity of God's love. And many people become offended at the suffering they see around them and they blame God and have not recognized that it is the integrity of God's love that requires that there are such consequences. God did not have this integrity. He could not contain ultimate, unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it. He is ultimately trustworthy because there is no corruption in him, because his love is totally pure, is totally holy, and is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to a love that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment of self-gratification. So people can ignore the truth which is evident all around them because it all points towards ultimate reality. Their conscience, they can sear it, but there is a conscience that has an inward compass that knows what is good from what is wrong, and what points to ultimate good in what they observe around them. For there are many things that one can observe in creation itself that are pointers, all pointing to higher levels of good that ultimately point to ultimate good, and that point to purpose onto greater and greater purpose that points to the ultimate purpose, which is a corporate marriage to God, as well as an individual marriage to the Creator. So that we are not controlled by the bait of temporal things that are used by temporal beings that have destructibility in them and use those temporal gratifying things to control people's lives to their own ends, to their destruction, and eventually to the destruction of those that are controlling them as well, that ultimately consummates in the judgment of Satan himself, being cast into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet in the last days. In Isaiah 24, we go on to see a similar description to what is in Job, the new wine mourneth, the vine languishes, all the merry hearted do sigh. The mirth of the tabret ceaseth, the noise of them that rejoice endeth, the joy of the harp ceaseth. They shall not drink wine with a song, strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. The city of confusion is broken down, every house is shut up, that no man may come in. There is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is dark and the mirth of the land is gone. The city is left 
to desolation, the gate is smitten with destruction. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be a shaking of an olive tree as the gleaning of the grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. The description here is of the destruction of the world system that is described in Revelations chapter 18 and other various places in the word of God that will happen in the last days. And even as this great earthquake happens, there will be those that have come into such a unity upon the earth with God and with each other that have come out of all the denominational structures and divisions of man to be a corporate bride that is pure and spotless for God. And in the midst of this destruction, they will worship God. As it says here, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires. Yes, in the midst of the fires of destruction, God will preserve his people and they will worship him as his corporate bride. And the kingdom of God will come upon the earth because Christ will return. And we go on in Isaiah 24 here, and we'll read a few, bit more of all of this. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and shall not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. These people that have become controllers and dictators that have oppressed their people and taken away their freedom like is happening in the States right now. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut in the prison and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So the Lord will return and the brightness of his glory will make the sun to be confounded and the moon ashamed. So great will be the brightness of the glory of God when he returns with his saints to reign upon the earth as is described in Zechariah 12 and other parts of the word of God. So now we go back to Joel chapter 3. And we see that in Joel, it is describing exactly what is beginning to happen. It says, proclaim ye among the Gentiles. That's the nations of the world that are not Israel. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. 
The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. God is promising that those that turn to him with all their heart and cry out to him even with fasting and mourning and weeping and true repentance in the last days will be those that will enjoy the new wine of God's spirit and of his blessings, of his provisions, and of his deliverance in the midst of these terrible judgments. As it says in Daniel, they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. But there will be a time of great tribulation, greater than the time of Jacob's trouble as is described in Jeremiah. and is also described in the book of Daniel. And so I will turn to the book of Daniel here just to briefly look at that book of Daniel describing that time. Going past Joel to Daniel. And I believe it's in Daniel chapter Possibly 10 or 11. I'll take 10. And Daniel has these tremendous visitations from God. It must be uh, possibly chapter 11. I've forgotten now. And we read... Well, you know, there's a faster way to find things here than doing it the way I'm doing it. X voice. There it is, Daniel 11, 28. Hold on, maybe I don't have it. Oh, here it is. It's 11:32. And it says this, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Now remember, I was describing to you the being of God's love in its ultimate perfection as this ultimate integrity of love from which springs forth the manifestation of God's creativity God's love and creativity ultimately manifested on the cross. And its ultimate consummate purpose will be the bride of Christ coming forth, pure and spotless upon the earth in corporate gatherings of people. There is a reciprocation of God's being of love through spending quality time seeking God, waiting on God, as Caleb and Joshua, I described earlier, were the only ones that God said would inherit the land. Why were they courageous? 
Why were they bold? Against overwhelming odds. Because they knew a relationship with God where they reciprocated God's being of love, appreciating the purity of his holiness and being in awe of that and humility before God, allowing themselves to be transparent and honest in their heart before God, for God to judge anything in in them that was not of God, and not to be rebellious against the holiness of God, but to rather love it, As King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. And he talks about worshiping God and the beauty of holiness. Holiness being the integrity of God's love that requires judgment. You see, out of holiness comes wholeness. Because only holiness can contain life without corruption. And it is life that with, without corruption that is ultimately whole. And what is ultimately whole manifests a beauty that is beyond anything of this world. And God is the very source of all beauty, for he is the creator of all that is good and all that is beautiful. And so when we appreciate the holiness of God and its fiery judgment against all that is corrupt and rebellion as against him, we begin to become whole ourselves in our inner being. And we begin to reciprocate the holiness of God and experience his wholeness and delight in the beauty of the glory of God that we behold with the eye of our heart as our heart is enlivened in its imagination by the Spirit of God playing upon the harp of our hearts, so to speak. Those beautiful songs of love back to God in appreciation of his holiness and of his grace manifested in his mercy to us, in his love to us, in his atoning sacrifice. And this was done from the very beginning of time, from Adam and Eve to now, people knew such a relationship with God, where they could perceive in God, more focused as the Father who transcends time and space and knows the end from the beginning and is the source of all things. That is the government of God as the Father, And then there's the Son, which is the expression of the Father. The word Son means expression. Father means originator. Son means expression. The Son is the expression of the source or the originator, ruling in the time and space realm. And if God could not be in personage beyond time and space in government, and in time and space in government, and filling all space in government as the Holy Spirit, he would be less than almighty. He is called Elohim. The Almighty's one is another name for God in the Bible. Describing the plurality of God's personage, who is one God. The Almighty's one. So God, this message of the gospel, has been from the very beginning of time. It is described as the everlasting gospel. 
in Revelations chapter 14. In fact, we should turn to Revelations 14 because that describes exactly what is described in our theme chapter, which is Joel. So we'll go back to Joel chapter 3. And I want to emphasize what is described here first in Joel before we go to Revelations chapter 14. It says, put in verse 13, it says, put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down for the press is full. The fats overflow, their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. People are coming all to a place where they must make a decision. Things are becoming more and more clear because the tares and the wheat are becoming to maturity. And it is obvious that some people, like we see the examples of in the United States, that would be so evil as to charge people $135,000 and on top of it seek to force them to go against their conscience is obviously a manifestation of incredibly great evil. And it's totally against what the all the soldiers and all the people in the wars fought for, which was liberty, to have our own free life to express what we believe. And so we see that multitudes are coming into the valley of decision. And there will soon come the time when the sun and the moon will be darkened. And this is described in many places throughout the word of God, and I need not go into it. And in Revelations chapter 14, we also see this harvest being described. So when we go to Revelations chapter 14, this is what is described. Just turning to Revelations chapter 14 now. And in Revelations chapter 14, it, it gives you a sequence of the events that will happen upon the earth. And this is the sequence beginning in verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters." This is the everlasting gospel that will be preached in the last days and is coming forth through messengers like myself and others. And I am clearly point out that people experienced genuine spiritual rebirth with God from the very time of Adam and Eve. Christ even made that clear to Nicodemus. He said, you should know this, and it was before he died on the cross. And he also said in John 14, For you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. The shall be in you is after he dies on the cross, because then the, our soul and spirit could be cleansed because the atoning sacrifice that represents our soul and spirit was sacrificed so that our soul and spirit could be cleansed. But before then, they still knew him by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit with their soul and spirit instead of indwelling. And that's a big topic to get into, which I can share a lot about, but will not. Because I want to focus on what God is saying right now to the body of Christ. And so 
This gospel has been preached from the time of Adam and Eve that there is one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness. Because he has revealed from the very time of Adam and Eve that he is the source of forgiveness. And that when they offered the innocent lamb, which represented them placing their hands on the lamb and their sin being placed on that lamb and it was killed, they recognized that the lamb could not represent them and cleanse their soul and spirit, but only their physical being to allow the Spirit of God to dwell with them. And so in that indwelling, they experienced spiritual rebirth. And I could go into a lot more detail about that. So this gospel has been from the very beginning. And it is a message which is basically this, to fear God, which is a choice to recognize God for who he really is to recognize what is ultimately real and ultimately trustworthy and could only be the quality that could be ultimately trustworthy and the quality that could be the very source of life. And that is this love that I'm describing as this ultimate negative and positive. The holiness of God, the integrity of his love, out of which springs the grace of God. And there are many counterfeit teachings and religious belief systems throughout history that have rebelled against the holiness of God and have embraced a belief system that violates the integrity of God's love. And there are others that have distorted the integrity of God's love and not acknowledged the grace of God, that God could actually be the very source of forgiveness, the only one that has such an ultimate moral perfection that he could become a perfect atoning sacrifice. Such a sacrifice requires that it be pure and sinless and fully represent man's soul and spirit, and that can only be found in God. So this everlasting gospel, which even existed before the creation of the world, because it says in Revelations 18 that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain before the foundation of the world, that is, before the world was created, before its plans were laid, it was a reality, not just a capacity in God, an actual reality in God, that his being was of such a perfection of love that there was within his being this perfection to be a perfect atoning sacrifice and as such in reality being it from before the world was created. And so in a very real sense, this gospel is everlasting for it existed in the very being of God before the creation of the world and God will be worshipped and reciprocated in fellowship by the recognition of who he is. What is the fear of God? It is the choice to recognize the holiness of God and the mercy of God. It is the choice to recognize God for who he really is. Ultimate reality is a love that has such integrity that it will not tolerate sin and yet can be transcendent with the power to provide mercy through perfect atoning sacrifice that is only found in God himself. After this preaching of the gospel that happens at the end of time, 
calling for people to fear God as I am now, to recognize God for who he truly is, to make a choice, not an intellectual choice, but a deep turning from the heart to recognize God in his holiness and mercy and to reciprocate his being into them. As Christ said, when he pointed out the publican that was beating his breast and bowing his face and beating his breast and crying out unto God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said, that man was justified. But the Pharisees, the religious people that were thanking God that they fasted three times a week and, and gave their thighs and were proud in their own righteousness, were rejected. God accepts those who choose to fear him like the publican and the sinner. He is calling people now to do that. Because what is described next year, after this message goes forth, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And that great city represents the world system because it describes Babylon in Revelations chapter 17 that she sits on many waters. And it is basically a system commerce, which we see in the free democracies of the world that has embraced immorality, for it describes her embracing of immorality in Revelations chapter 17. And so here we see the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast, so there is the destruction of this world system, probably by atomic bombs, released by China and Russia upon the free world. I pray it never happens. It's not my desire to see any such thing happen. But if you go to my website at loverealize.com, you can watch men that have laid down their lives for the truth of the gospel, like um, there's one whose name is, uh, oh man, it's Henry Groover. And there's a number of others, including George Washington, which had a vision of this attack happening in the last days, according to men of integrity that were next to him. Henry Groover has gone before terrorists in various parts of the world that said they would kill him. And God has, and he's walked right through that where they were, even though they told him not to, and God has delivered him from them. That's the kind of man Henry Groover is. He goes around the world praying for different areas. God tells him to walk and pray, and he goes into territories where he's not supposed to go even, and God protects him. A man of great integrity that knows many great things that have happened in his life where God has delivered him. And he prophesies as a prophet about the coming attack on the United States where the cities on both coasts are incinerated by a nuclear attack from China and Russia. And it's not just in the States. It's also in England. It's also in Rome and other parts of the world. And so after this happens, the Antichrist sets up his world system, which is described here. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, 
The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And then the rest of this chapter in Revelations chapter 14 describes the two harvests. First, there's the harvest of multitudes of souls that are in the valley of decision as described in Joel. Multitudes come into the kingdom of God. And then after that, there is the harvest of judgment. And we have that starting in verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice, a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and, the, and blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlines, which I think is something like fifteen hundred miles, up to the horse bridles. That's the slaughter that will happen when God destroys the Antichrist and the Antichrist world system, which does rebuild Babylon as well as it is described as being destroyed in a totally different way in another part of Revelations through the great earthquake. But it is Revelations chapter 19 that describes this destruction. And we read this, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. That's a sword of light from the Spirit of God. And all the falls were filled with their flesh. And that sword causes blood to run up to the horse bridles for 1,600 or for 1,500 square miles or something. I don't know. It's just pretty shocking. But out of this comes forth God's ultimate purpose for which he created all things upon the earth. And that is that he would have a corporate bride, which is also described, and I'll do this in closing, in Romans chapter 8, for example. So we go to Romans chapter 8, and we read the fall way, going down towards the end, and we read this. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth and pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first, first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit the redemption of our body. And before that, it describes this. 
beginning in verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There will come, come a time when the bride of Christ will manifest forth in its glory and liberty upon the earth, and the whole creation will, will also be liberated from the bondage of corruption. And I've been describing this corruption, which is in all things except in God himself, and it is when we are abiding in him through receiving Jesus Christ, which is plainly just the expression of God into the creation and time realm to us. Jesus Christ is the one and only expression of the one true God into the creation and time realm. So we have a wonderful, glorious gospel to share. And we can be part of the corporate bride of Jesus Christ. We just simply have to ask, once we've received Christ, for God to lead us to those that truly know him. And he will, as we earnestly ask him. I have been led to gatherings of believers that move in a close relationship with God, where we do not limit God by a program and a hierarchy of that is insensitive to Jesus Christ as they had, but we allow the full headship of Christ to inhabit his body. And the message that God is wanting to give to the body of Christ in these last days is to allow the full headship of Christ to come over your local assembly and to inhabit your local assembly and to quit holding off that full inhabiting of your body with the headship of Christ. And also for his house to be a house of prayer is how this begins. When we as those that gather around Christ begin to get on our faces and humble ourselves before him and be in awe of who he is and cry out to him with the depths of our heart and being in humility, it allows the glory of God to come in our midst. It breaks the tendency towards control and divisiveness which comes out of the spirit of pride where people tend to be looked up to. When there isn't control through the leadership, or the leadership allows Jesus to be head, then he can bring more abundant honor on the part that lacks so that there is no schism in the body. Because those that tend to be looked up to are humble. So that those with more that are not so looked up to have greater graces and giftings from God so the valleys are raised, the mountains are brought down, and then all flesh can see the glory of God and he can inhabit his living stones and truly be the head over his body. This is what God is calling denominations and churches to do in this urgent hour before great judgments fall. If you want to see the harvest fully reaped and you want to see the judgment minimized and multitudes come into to the kingdom of God in your nation, his strategy is for his house to be a house of prayer and to repent and to embrace the headship of Jesus Christ. What would happen to our nation if those in leadership called for the nation to have three days of fasting and prayer without food or water? 
and cry out mightily unto God and mourn over the sins that have accumulated in our nations and have brought oppression, as we have seen begin to happen in the free world, against liberty and freedom to have our own lives lived out before God. I can be sure you, if we are willing to do such a thing, to mightily humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and to call out for a time of fasting and prayer for three days, even without food or water for those that can do it. And I would pray that everyone could and trust God unless they have serious health issues or issues that would harm them. If we do this in the United States and we repent of the gods of amusement where we idolize sports and we, we accept these things as okay in the church that rob people of a life of prayer so that they are involved with a lot of their energy and focus in the things that are clearly the loves of the world. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. May we repent of these things as corporate bodies. May we repent of these things as a nation. And God will turn and raise up a standard against the enemy so that in this last day we can see a great harvest. And even in the midst of judgments that are severe that will come upon the wicked, we will know his protection and delivering power and his blessing in the midst of it. For they that do know their God shall be strong like Caleb and Joshua. They will be fearless in the midst of judgment and in the midst of persecution and opposition. They will be fearless unto death and martyrdom and torture because they know such a reciprocative, loving, abiding relationship with God in their lives. May we rise up as an army and be like Caleb and Joshua, those that are his house of prayer, his corporate army in these last days. Thank you for listening to this message.